Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Let's talk this morning about doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. You're at the movie. The person in front of you at the movie, their cell phone goes off, which is a no-no, right? Not supposed to have your cell phone on. You're supposed to turn your, the, the cell phones off. This guy hasn't done that, so you've got to put up with that obnoxious ringtone. Now you're already rolling your eyes like, oh, man, this guy, right? Then he answers the phone, and he says, yeah, I'm at the movie theater. And you can tell that whoever's on the other end has said something to the effect of, well, I'll call you back. And he says, no, I can talk to you. And it's at that point that you want to say, no, you can't, because I paid $250 to get in here, and my kid's eating a $10 Snickers bar, and you can't talk to him on the phone right now. Wrong thing, wrong time. Or, um, you know, sometimes we do the wrong thing at the wrong time. You're at someone's house, or you're eating out, it's, you're on their back deck, there's this nice spread and all this food, and you're hungry, and, you're, you know, you dive in, you start eating stuff, you got your mouth full of food, and then you hear them say, let's pray. <laughs> right? And you're just hoping nobody saw that your mouth was full of food. Dear God. <clears throat> or, how about saying the wrong thing at the wrong time? Now, I'm gonna, there's one question that you can't ask. Gentlemen, there's one question that you can't ask. And ladies know where I'm going with this, but guys, we gotta figure this out. The one question you can never ask a lady is what? Are you pregnant? When are, when are you due? You never wanna ask that question. Because, you know, what do you say when she comes back and says, I'm not pregnant? I mean, the only thing you can say is, no, I meant, when are your taxes due? When are you, that's what I was, when are your taxes due? It's the wrong thing at the wrong time. I bring this up today because in our story today, somebody's going to do the wrong thing at the wrong time. Luke chapter 11, verse 37, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. So I know we have some folks here today that you might hear the word Pharisee, and you're like, well, what's a Pharisee? You know, what is that? So a Pharisee, <clears throat> just to describe them for you, they're, they're religious leaders of the people, highly respected, sometimes highly feared. But they were very, very devoted in their faith. And as you see when you read the Christian Bible, they are often in conflict with Jesus. We, we read there that he went in, Jesus went in and reclined at the table. And right now, I can just imagine some man is having an epiphany. I could put a recliner at the table. That would be awesome. But that's not what we're talking about. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago when I, when I explained to you the idea of a triclinium. Tri meaning three uh, clinia, from which we get the word recliner, it is a, a, a table that has three sides. The inside is open so that a server can get in there and, and serve, and then there would be, you know, the table's not real high off the ground. Um, this particular picture, I've seen some pictures where their tables are even lower and the people are even more reclined than that. But the, the, the head, you know, is close to the table. The feet go away from the table. That's a triclinium. So Jesus has gone in and he has assumed this posture for the dinner. Now, I told you a moment ago that someone's going to do the wrong thing at the wrong time, and that someone is Jesus. He's going to do the wrong thing at the wrong time. Verse 38, but the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Now, some of you right now are thinking to yourself, man, Dr. Fauci is having a hissy fit right now, right? Um, and others of you who are germaphobes are thinking to yourself, really, Jesus, come on. I mean, you didn't wash. You didn't got to wash before you eat your meal, except that's, this is an entirely different thing than any of that. Um, you know, they didn't understand germ uh, science or germ technology or anything like that. They didn't understand that you wash germs off your hands. That wasn't really <clears throat> what this was about. Um, we're talking about a ceremonial hand washing here. Uh, ancient Jews especially the Pharisees, would take a pitcher of water and they would, they would take the pitcher and they would pour water over their fingertips and their hands and that water would run down their arm to the elbow and then they would turn their arm the other way and they would pour from the elbow down and that water would run and it would drip off their fingers. They would do that on both hands and that was a ceremonial washing and that's what everybody was expected to do in a setting like this. <clears throat> and what they think is, you know, their thinking was, this sets me up to enter the presence of God 
This sets me up to have an encounter with him. This sets me up to be, uh, to be pure. I'm ceremonially pure. So they, you know, there's this belief among the Jews, especially Pharisees, that your physical cleanliness uh, on the outside prepared the way for you to approach God. And so there was this connection between your physical cleanliness and your total cleanliness to approach a holy and pure God. And so the Pharisees were pretty serious about this. They recognized this stuff and they wanted you to recognize it. And they followed all kinds of ceremonial cleansings like that in order to make themselves pure before God. This is a big deal to them. Jesus walks into this lunch and he skips this whole thing. And I don't think this is an accident. I don't think that he just, you know, slipped his mind. I think he knew even before he goes in there, I'm not doing the ceremonial washing and it's going to be on when, when that happens. And he, he, he does it. He, he skips all of that. And he sends a very clear nonverbal message to this Pharisee. Your ceremonies and your outer washings are not what this is about. And it's not really all that important to me. To which the Pharisee, I think, gives him a nonverbal uh, indicator that, um, you know what, I'm appalled that you wouldn't wash your hands. To which I think Jesus gives another nonverbal cue that says, oh, it's on. Right? Because over lunch, where they are very likely sharing food out of the same dish, right? Like they would have had their breads and things, but they would have dipped into common bowls, and that, that was likely going on. Jesus proceeds to bring the thunder on this Pharisee and Pharisees in general. So that's where we're going today. Sound like fun? Sound like something you want to get into? And, and this is going to be good because Jesus is going to light up the Pharisees. Now, when you crack open your Bible and you read about Pharisees, they just seem like the worst possible kind of guys. They're arrogant, they're pompous, they're condescending. So watching Jesus get after this guy, you might think, well, this is going to be a lot of fun. But here's the challenge this morning. Let's think a moment about the Pharisees and who they are and what they're about because the Pharisees are deeply devoted to God. They're passionate about understanding and teaching the Scriptures. They're deeply devoted to living right, to praying, to financial tithing. They were deeply devoted to all these things. They're also concerned about the moral decline of their nation. Now, I would just ask you, does that sound like anybody that you know? I can tell you this, it sounds like me. Let me give you a little hint about Bible study Whenever you're reading your Bible, it's always good to ask the question, where am I in the story? Where, where, who, in this particular story, where are the lessons for me? Now, in this story that we're looking at today, I'll just give you a hint. You're probably not Jesus, okay? There's only two people in the story, Jesus and a Pharisee, and you're probably not Jesus. So as I read this story, I see the Pharisees as people a lot like me, church people, passionate about the scriptures, devoted to God, praying, wanting to be devout, wanting to be, you know, faithful. And so here's the challenge. Unlike some of the dinners where Jesus sits down with people and you would call it a table of fellowship, that is not what you have today. You do not have a table of fellowship. You have a table of correction. And Jesus is going to have very, very harsh words for this Pharisee. And the challenge is, are you willing today to sit in the place of the Pharisee and let Jesus say some very challenging things to you and to me? That's the challenge. Listen, it is a whole lot easier to read this stuff and think, well, you know, he's talking to a Pharisee. He's not talking about me. And it's easy to look at this and go, man, those Pharisees, they're so out of line. They're so messed up. I mean, no wonder Jesus had to get on them all the time. But it's much more helpful, albeit painful, to say, okay, where do I do that? Where do I take on the role of the Pharisee? And how do I do what he's doing? And how would I need to fall under the teachings of Jesus? Jesus is going to use four images in our time together today to make his point. The first one of the, the, the images is that of dishes. Jesus shows up at this guy's house. He skips the ceremonial washing. The Pharisee is offended. And now Jesus is going to start in. And some of the tough words that he uses are in verse 39. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, 
And what Jesus implies is, but you're not cleaning the inside. So the way this would look is, you know, and probably the way in your house that this happened like it did in mine when I was growing up, would be times when my mom would say at the end of the meal, hey, mom is done for the day. She's worked hard, she's cooked, she's cleaned, and I just, we just had this great meal. You guys, I'm off, you're doing the dishes. <clears throat> now, can you imagine, uh, that's you and your family, and you, let's say you've got a 14-year-old boy, and he is going to now start doing the dishes, and you're sitting at the table just watching all this unfold in all of its glory, right? And all of a sudden, you look over, and your son is washing the outside of the cup that, that you guys drank from, one of the cups, and you notice that he's really meticulous about washing the outside, but he never makes that towel go on the inside, right? And he puts it in the drying bin, and it's done. Does that, moms, does that make anything rise in you? Like, well, we can't let that happen. That, 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 can't, we, that can't stand. No, you're going to stop. Hey, son, how about, how about we get inside? How about we, you know, wash the lip real good and, and let's get on the inside where it's actually dirty. You know, the part that's been contaminated. How about we clean that as well? Of course you're going to say something to them. I don't know about you, but... I like guacamole. I love chips and guacamole. It's one of my favorite things. And so uh, here's what I've learned. At night, when I've finished my guacamole bowl, if I don't put it in the sink and rinse it with some water, there are problems. What I've learned is if you just leave it in the sink overnight, you wake up in the morning to guacamole on the inside of the bowl, the consistency of cement, and you're not getting that out. I mean, not easy anyway. So let's just imagine that we have eaten our guacamole the night before. We've put the, the bowl in the sink. We haven't treated it with any water, just left it there to dry. You wake up the next morning and you pour your cornflakes in that same bowl. Yeah. And the milk. And you're thinking to yourself, that is gross. Yes! It's gross. Because who wants to eat that? Nobody. Now imagine waking up in the morning and, and you know, you're serving your family something like that. You're just disgusting. You wouldn't do it. Jesus says, you clean the outside of the cup, but you don't clean the inside. Specifically, he says, now then, Pharisees, this is verse 39, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. In other words, the inside is ugly. The inside is dirty. And he uses this word greed. I, I looked that word up in Greek this week. And in, in the Greek, there's a definition out to the side. You get several definitions. But it was interesting to me that one of the words that's associated with this particular word greed that he uses here is the word wolf. In other words, savage was another word that I saw. It is a savage greed. Okay? That's, that's how... Powerful is the word that Jesus is using as he comes at this Pharisee, calls him greedy. And not just greedy, you're savage about it. And it's like Jesus is saying, on the outside you look good, but on the inside there's a motivation that, you know, I'm going to get what I want at all costs and I don't care what it does to you. I don't care what it does. I don't care how it makes you feel. I'm going to get mine. And I'm going to get what I want. The verse ends with the word wickedness there. It's dark in there. The outside does not match the inside. There's a word that Jesus often uses, and it's a word that is associated with, with uh, he attaches it to the Pharisees in this particular case. We're going to see a little later in our time. But it's associated with Greek and Roman theater. Um, this is the theater at Epidaurus in Greece. And that is one of the best representations of a theater that we have remaining from antiquity. That one is very, very well preserved. And I just, that picture is gorgeous. Um, but, you know, some of these, when you find them, they're really, they're, they've been decayed quite a bit. This one is in really, really good shape. Um, but this is where a, a, an actor or an actress would have put on plays. And the technical term that they gave to a person who did that was the term, does anybody know? Hypocrite. It was the hypocrite. And so we get that word from the Greek word, hypocriti. That's where that word comes from. And so um, in Greek theater, the, the actor or the actress would put on this mask, and they would wear a mask so that you, know, that you couldn't tell who they were, and they would, they would act out their play. And Jesus says, you you're a hypocrite. 
You, you clean the outside, but you don't clean anything on the inside, and that's the problem. So let's talk about the masks that we wear. We've gotten pretty good at wearing masks, haven't we, since March or February? That's uh, something that's common for all of us, and we thank you for doing that when you come in, if you're doing that. But um, we have been good at wearing masks for a long, long time. Mask wearing is not new to us. We, we're good, myself included. When I talk to you, I'm always talking to me, okay? So I don't ever want to appear like I'm putting all this on you. I can do this too. But we wear masks. One of the masks we wear is the mask of success. The career is solid. You got the house. You got the money. You got the car. Everything looks great. People look at you and they think to themselves, man, they've got it all. They got everything going on. I wish I was them. But underneath the mask... There's an emptiness in your heart. Underneath the mask, nothing is fulfilling. Underneath the mask, nothing is able to satisfy you. That's why you just keep adding more and more and more stuff. We're going to get one of these, and we're going to get one of these. And, and you, you just never stop. You're constantly adding to the list of things that you're going to get. Some of us wear the mask of appearance. We do our hair. I mean, I work especially hard on mine. We do the hair. We do the nails, we do the toes, we go to the mall or we go to the shopping center and we, we look for just the right outfits because we want to make the right statements and we want to look good and beautiful and stylish and put together. But under the mask, there's insecurity, there's unhappiness, there's anxiety. We worry. And on the outside, it's a good show, but on the inside, you don't want anything to do with that. Doesn't match up. Then there's the mask of faith. Really good person. Man, he's a really good guy. Man, she's a, re she's a really good girl. But what nobody knows is there's an addiction there. And if, the, if that addiction ever came to light and if the right people ever found out, if this ever, if this ever comes out, oh, it could ruin so much. The mask of respectability. People look at your life and your family and you're all put together and, you know, you've got the quintessential great house and great spouse and 2.5 kids and the dog looks awesome and, you know, it's a designer dog and you've got the little picket fence. I mean, it's all perfect. It all just looks so perfect. But underneath the mask, the marriage is crumbling. You can't get along. Your kids are a mess. The dog passes gas in the living room and it stinks. I mean, nothing's right, right? Nothing's right. It's a good show on the outside, but it doesn't match what's happening on the inside. We do this, and we wear masks in the same way that the Pharisees did. And if we can just keep up the appearance, if we can just keep the mask on, everything will be fine. We can ride this out. Somebody at Cross Lane last week had the, at the picnic had this shirt on. It made me chuckle. It, it said, it's fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine, Right? You can just hear the, you can hear the desperation of, I'm trying to cover up. I mean, they're wearing it as a joke. We all get it. But, but there is a part of that that is reflective of how we can be sometimes. You know, it's a little bit of Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the man behind the, the curtain. Right? Just, 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 just pay attention to the, to the charade that's going on. Make sure you pay attention to the, the act that we're putting out there because that's what I want you to see. There's just one problem, and it's this. God doesn't look at people the way people look at people. In, in the Jewish scriptures, hundreds of years before Jesus, God taps a man named Samuel to find the next king of Israel, and he's going to find that king in the house of Jesse. And so he sends uh, Samuel the prophet to go to Jesse's house, and Jesse's got all these sons and these fine-looking men, and he lines them up, and here they are, they're intelligent, they're handsome, they're well-built. I mean, these guys, they, they look the part, right? Like any one of them, you would look at them and go, well, he'd make a great king. I mean, there was a whole lineup of them. And, and Samuel is praying about, okay, God, who is it? Who's going to be the next king? Which one do you want us to pick? And who, who, should I, who should I anoint the next king? And here's what God said. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, God sees right through the mask, and he sees right into our hearts. And Jesus says, man, the outside looks so good. But on the inside, it's a mess. There are insecurities, there are prejudices, there's greed, there's lust, there's pride. And I think Jesus would say, let me in there. 
Let me in there. Let me fix some of that. Let me take some of that away. I think Jesus wants to wash the dishes only. I think that Jesus would make mom happy. I think Jesus would watch the outside, but I think Jesus would do an awful lot of washing on the inside as well. Did you know that your heart can be changed? Did you know that God longs to come into and transform your heart to make it different? I think people go through life sometimes and they think, well, this is just who I am, this is what I do, and it can't be changed. No. God, God can. Christ will come into your heart and he will change your thoughts, your motivations, your emotions. Jesus wants to, just wants to change not just the outside, but he wants to get in and do what needs to be done on the inside where nobody else sees. Maybe it's time to just take off the mask and let Jesus into your heart and do some deep cleaning. Now, there's the, no question that Jesus is, is coming on pretty strong with this, this Pharisee and his words. And it's certainly different than what we normally see with Jesus when he sits down and he talks to people and he's full of compassion and he's full of mercy and he's full of grace. He's getting after it with this Pharisee. And here's the thing. Jesus is <laughs> he's just getting started. You know, this Pharisee's like, what? And, and Jesus has pinned his ears back and he's going for it. Why is he being so harsh? Well, he uses a word. He uses a phrase, a word. In the next several verses there, and, and, and he's going to attach this to three different images. And I think it gives us some clarity on the heart behind the harshness that Jesus has with this Pharisee. See, I think, just a moment of confession before you. If, if When I see a Pharisee in Scripture, immediately my I don't like him radar goes up, right? Like when I see, and there was a Pharisee, I'm like, yeah, he was a jerk. Like I don't like him. He's a jerk. I wouldn't want to be around him. I don't think that's how Jesus responded at all. I think when Jesus encountered a Pharisee, he knew that he was around someone who wasn't going to be very kind to him. But I think Jesus had much love for people like Pharisees. I think he loved them. But in this particular case, he's, he's, he's getting after this Pharisee, but it's done in love. He uses this phrase, woe. And I don't mean like, woe, you know, Nelly, like hold your horses, woe. I mean, W-O-E. It's a, it's a biblical word, right? Like you see that, and when you read that, you're like, well, it's got to come from the Bible, because I remember that word from when I was little. What does it mean? What does it mean when Jesus says, woe to you? It carries with it two ideas. There's two, two things, grief and warning. Grief in that there's deep sadness about what's going on. Like I see this behavior, and I'm deeply saddened by what I see. But I also see this behavior, and I think to myself, warning, warning, if this doesn't get fixed, it's going to get worse. This has to be fixed. The closest thing I can imagine to this whole idea is if you've ever been a part of an intervention where they sit someone down and they say, listen, listen, this has got to change. You can't keep going like this. First of all, I'm grieved by what I see happening in you, and it's got to stop. But secondly, if it doesn't stop, you're headed for disaster. That's the idea behind this word, uh, woe. And that's what we're talking about when Jesus uses the word with this Pharisee. It's a warning of, with deep grief attached to it. You've got to turn this around. This is at the heart, and this is behind everything that Jesus is saying to this Pharisee. Jesus isn't being hateful here. He's just trying to make his point, and he's trying to make it as strongly as he can. So, so um, let me show you verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. And he's talking about tithing a tenth of the herbs. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your herbs. So the second image we're looking at today is spices. See, in first century Israel, the people were called to give a tenth or a tithe of their crops. And, and they gave them to the priest, partly because the priest didn't raise crops. He was busy taking care of things in the temple, and he oversaw distribution of food sometimes. And so they, they, the priests got some of the food from people from the tithe, but they also distributed that. They would you know, store it, and then they would make sure that the right people got it. And, and the Pharisees were meticulous about this. They tithed their crops, but not only did they tithe their crops, I mean, it was one of those deals where, you know, your wife is cutting up the cilantro, and the Pharisee would say, hey, before you do that, make sure you set aside a tenth of the cilantro to take to the 
to the temple. They didn't have to do that. I mean, they were called to tithe their crops, but there was no provision, and there was nobody calling for you to tithe your spices. But the Pharisees went over and above because that's what they did. They took everything to the nth degree, and they just they exaggerated everything. And Jesus is saying, woe to you, which doesn't really make any sense. I mean, if you're getting woed over too much tithing, can you imagine what Jesus has to say to the guy that doesn't tithe at all? Oh, my goodness. So what's going on? Verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. What he's saying here is it's possible to be financially generous without reflecting a generous heart for your God, or the generous heart of your God, really. He, he goes on, you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. What's he saying is, should you just do one or the other? No, he says, do them both, but as you do it, make sure that there's a heart that goes with it. Don't just fulfill the obligation. Don't just say the words. Don't just do the thing. It needs to be connected to a heart that really is tied into whatever it is that you're doing. He talks about two characteristics there uh, that are at the core of who God is. He talks about justice and he talks about love. And he said, you neglect justice and love. Maybe we need to take a closer look. Let's talk about justice for a moment. Justice means to make right. That's what justice means, to make right. You're at Meyer. You just did your grocery shopping. You got your, put your stuff in the car and and you put your car in reverse and you back out and daggone it, you nick the car behind you and break their taillight. Well, now what are you going to do? So you got a couple of options. You can drive off, which you shouldn't do, okay? In case anybody doesn't understand that, that's bad, don't do that. But you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to stay in your car until they come out and then you're going to get out and address them and say, listen, I've accidentally backed into your car it's my fault. It's my responsibility. I'll make sure that that gets fixed. You're going to make it right. That's justice. Or you're going to write a note and leave your phone number and say, hey, I was in a hurry, but I did this. I want to take responsibility for it. I'll see to it that it gets fixed. That's justice. I'm, I'm going to fix it, okay? In the late 60s, there was a civil rights movement designed to bring other minorities into an era when they got the same things that the majority got. And, and, and in the late 60s, they passed some laws to make sure that, that everybody was treated the same. And the civil rights movement was a justice movement. It was designed to make something right. Justice is a core component of God's character. But there's also love. So what is, what's love? Love is to put the needs of others before your own. It's to put the needs of others first. So we have a tendency to think about love really more as a noun than as a verb. We like to think about love as an emotion and not an action. But really, it's best seen as a, as a verb. And Jesus says, look, don't, don't be generous and neglect justice and love. And when you put justice and love together, do you know what you get? Your problem becomes my problem. When you put love and justice together, what you get is your problem becomes my problem. Your pain becomes my pain. Your struggle becomes my struggle. And that is exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. We had a sin problem, and Jesus said, your problem is going to become my problem. I'm going to make your problem my problem. I'm going to fix it. And he became a human being, and he experienced everything as a human that we can experience and then he literally took his, our sin on himself and he died in our place. Your problem has become my problem. And Jesus made us free at the cross. And when we experience the generous heart and the love of God, we are transformed and we begin to share that generosity with other people. Throughout history, you have seen this happen. It was the early Christians who invented hospitals. I don't know if you know this or not, but back in the day, first, second century, if you were going to be seen by a doctor, it was only if you had enough money to pay for a doctor to come to your house. Or if you could afford to go to, if he had an office, you might go to his office. But poor people didn't have the, the benefit of getting to 
the, the same medical attention that other people got. And so Christians were the ones who decided, you know what, for the sake of poor people, we need to have hospitals. We need to have a place where sick people can go to be treated and be made better. Your problem has become my problem. We talked about how several weeks ago I told you about how they used to, you know, if you had a baby and you decided you didn't want the baby in first century Palestine, uh, Roman law provided for you that if you didn't want to take care of that baby, you just took it out to the, to the edge of the forest and left it there and ex what they called exposed it. And the idea was that the fates, the gods, will decide whether or not that child lives or dies, but it's not your responsibility. And you just put it out there, and you walk away, and you can forget it. It's not even your kid. You don't even have to worry about it. Don't think about it. They called it exposure. Well, first century Christians would go out, and they would find those places where they would leave those babies. They would pick them up. They would bring them home. They would bring them into their homes, and they would adopt them as their own at their own expense. Your problem has become my problem. The, the abolitionist movement, the, the abolition of slavery, that all came about because Christians got together and said, this cannot be. Christians were at the forefront of the movement to stop slavery in Britain and the United States. Your problem has become my problem. We've got people in this church that, have, that foster children. They don't have to do that. What are they saying when they foster kids? Your problem has become my problem. We've got people in this church, we can't do it right now because of COVID, but they go over here to Terrytown School once a week, they volunteer their time, they give of their resources so that they can go help somebody else. What are they saying? Your problem has become my problem. Justice combined with love. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to put someone else's needs before my own. You put those together, your problem becomes my problem. And Jesus is looking at this Pharisee and he's leaning into him and he's really getting after him and he says, you're missing it. You don't get it. You have no idea what justice and love look like. Now what do you do? What do you do when you feel like Jesus is, you know, kind of in your business and, and giving it to you? I'd like to introduce you to a phrase. Start small, start close to home. Let's not try to tackle world hunger in our first big experiment, right? Your problem has become my problem. How do I go, how do I do that at home? How do I go to school and, and implement that? How do I do that at work? You know, if you, were, if you come to church and you, like once in a while you come to church and you hear us talk about we need musicians or we need, you know, people working in the sound booth or we need nursery workers or, or security people or, you know, just all kinds of things. I can tell you one thing we desperately need all the time, right? Like if God ever moves you, and you're like, what could I do that would most help the church? One of the most important roles in our church is in our children's ministry area. And I, just a challenge to men, one of the greatest things that ever happens in any church anywhere in the world is when you walk into a children's area and you see men on their knees teaching little children. Most important thing that can happen in a church. And so I'm sending out the plea that any, any of you that ever need to work in our, want to work in our children's area we will train you. We will not throw you to the wolves. We will train you. We will give you st the stuff you need. You're not by yourself, but we need help back there. Now, if, if, if any of the, you ever want to get involved in anything at Cross Lane, this is the man you need to see. There's Tracy. I told Tracy I was going to show his picture in church. He said, what picture? And I showed him the picture, and he said, okay, I can handle that. You can show that picture. And, and Cheryl looked at it, and she said, but Tracy, you're not smiling. Well, you notice Tracy that's tra Tracy generally doesn't smile I mean that's what that's what you get and he's just focused Tracy's just focused okay he's a good dude but he he needs to smile more but um, that's who you're looking for if you if you um, want to get involved Tracy is the one that you know is the one that he helps us get people in the places that they need to be Maybe you're starting to think right now, well, wait a minute, what, if I start to be generous with my time and my money and all that kind of stuff, and if I start hanging out with people that have real needs, um, you know, that could affect not just my time and not just my money, but that could affect my reputation. And the answer to that is, yes, it could. It could. Which is why it's a good time to talk about the third thing that Jesus uses there in, by way of an image, and that's seats. Verse 43, woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplace. On a couple of occasions, I have had the opportunity to preach at black, in a black church. 
which um, I'll just will tell you is one of the highlights of my life. I mean, I, I've, that I've had a couple of really great experiences. There's, there's just nothing really like it at all. When I was in Bible college, um, our, my homiletics professor walked in one day, and he was good at challenging us, and he looked at us one day, and it's mostly white boys in the crowd, and he said, you know what? He said, I just I feel like I should say this to you. He said, you guys need to um, stop going to some of your white churches. You need to go to the black churches and help support them and work with them and, and you know, reach across and, and get to know other people, and you need to be involved in with some of the black churches. And he challenged us to do that. And so I decided, you know what, that's, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. So I did. I, I found a, a black church on, in the inner city in Knoxville, Tennessee, and, and I started going to church there. Well, then inside of two weeks, this dude has me on stage preaching. I couldn't believe it. I mean, he's like, wow. Um, again, greatest experience in my life. I've got great stories I could tell you about that. But um, one of the things about this particular church and it didn't happen. I preached on a Sunday night. It didn't happen on Sunday night. But on Sunday morning, when I would go to church there, the preacher would be up preaching, which was awesome. And then behind him are all these chairs. And there are these dudes that were sitting in these chairs. And as he would get really going, you know, they'd start clapping and, and talking and, and looking at one another and agreeing like, he's right. You know, he's right. And I was like, oh, yes. This is so awesome. But I knew looking at these men that they were important. You know, I kept thinking, well, what do, you, what do you have to do to sit in those chairs? I mean, those guys must be really important. And I think that they were probably the deacons. Well, here's, here's the deal. In, in first century Palestine, when you walked into the synagogue, what, what happened is there was general seating. And then there was a, a Torah, the Torah, which was the, the law, the first five books of the Bible. And then beyond that was a semicircle that was preferred seating, and that was for the Pharisees. And these Pharisees loved walking in and walking past that general seating. And they loved the sight that they knew was being displayed when they walked past the Torah. And they went to take their place and gather up their robe and sit down in that semicircle where they knew that they were special and everybody else is off looking at the distance, you know, in the distance like, wow, look at them. And the Pharisees loved that feeling of, superiority and, and, and pompousness and I'm better than you and all those kind of things. And Jesus um, has more to say about this in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. And you're like, okay, what? What are phylacteries? And what's he mean tassels? What are we talking about? Okay, so phylacteries and tassels. Are you ready? Here we go. That box you see on this guy's head, his hair's dark, it's kind of hard to see it, but right on the very top, there's a, there's a, um, there's a little leather box attached to his head, and you see the, his arm is wrapped, and then right in the corner there of his elbow, right on the bicep, is a, another little leather box. That's known as a phylactery, and they would put Hebrew scriptures in there. And those Hebrew scriptures were a reminder of who God was, and who they were in God, and that God had been faithful. That's what those were all about. And the same thing with the tassel. The tassel on the prayer shawl is a reminder of who God is, and how faithful he's been, and that they belong to God. And the purpose of this was good. I mean, this is good. It's a reminder of, of you know, your connection to God. There's nothing at all wrong with that. Symbolism is a good thing. I'm not arguing that at all. But the problem was, uh, the Pharisees started to make, you know, they figured out, well, if that means I'm spiritual then I'm going to make my tassel really long. And I'm going to make my leather box really big. And I've said this up here before, and I'll, I'll say it again, but this is one of the things that I contend in life, and it's true, and it's absolutely true of me, and it's true of you, and I'll, I'll say this, and then I'll come behind it with something. It's easy to look spiritual. It's easy. You just say the right words, dress the right way, carry a big Bible, make sure it's highlighted. You know, make sure you got all your bulletins stuffed in there so everybody knows you've been to church, right? It's easy to look spiritual. It's really hard to be spiritual. It's easy to say, oh, God bless you, I'm so happy for you, but you're really spiritual when you walk away and you go, no, I really am happy for them. I really am happy. I'm not jealous I'm not mad that they got that. I'm happy. I'm happy for them. 
And I, I, I just tell you, I can get up here and I can make you think I'm really spiritual. I can use big, long church words. I can quote scripture. I can pray beautiful prayers. I can make all that stuff happen. And I can make you think, and I'll be, be totally honest with you, I have made you think before that I was really spiritual. And inside, I was a mess, a total mess. And if you knew what was going on, you'd have said, I don't want to hear another word he's got to say. Because it's really easy to look spiritual. But it's really hard to be spiritual. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the difference. And so they, you know, they, get, they make these, these phylacteries. They go to making them really big. And the tassels that they had on their shawls were really long. And Jesus is calling these guys out. And he's like, you guys are ridiculous. They were always trying to elevate their status. And just about the time you're st- you're, you get ready to think to yourself, you know, these Pharisees, man, I mean, they were ridiculous. You know what? It's so much more helpful, albeit painful, to say, okay, God, where do I do this in my life? Where do I need to hear your voice, and where do I need to make some correction? You see, it's the person who walks into the room, and he's looking for the person that he can connect to that elevates his status. It's the person who looks through their closet, and they're thinking to themselves, what outfit can I pick that will really make a statement it's the person who hovers over their keyboard thinking what's the perfect post what can I write here that would make everybody think I'm smart and close to God and all those things and I'm gonna do that and we all do this one of the things that I try to live by it's hard to live by but one of the things I try to live by is I want to be the kind of person There's two kinds of people in the world. You are one of these two kinds of people. There are people who go into a room and say, there you are. And there are people who walk into a room and say, here I am. And I've just, I've always tried to be, I don't know that I'm always successful, but I try to be a person that when I go into a room, I'm a person going into a room saying, there you are. It's so good to see you. And, and try to make it about them and not so much about me. Now, when we get in conversations, we share and we talk back and forth, right? I mean, that's just that's the nature of a conversation. But my attitude is and my hope is that I can make it about them, that I can make, elevate them and elevate their status. And again, I don't always do that perfectly. But we want to be liked, and we, we want to be noticed, and we want our status elevated. We want those kind of things. It comes naturally for us. But here's what I'm going to tell you. At every turn, Jesus is calling you against your human nature. The things that come naturally for us, Jesus is constantly pulling us away from that and saying, I know that's natural, but that's not best for you. Come away from that. And I'm reminded about the dinner with Jesus when the disciples are going to follow him into this upper room and they're all having a conversation about who's going to be the most important and who's going to get to sit in the most important seats at this dinner. And they're having this ridiculous conversation. And in my mind, the way I see it unfold is, you know, they're talking amongst themselves and all of a sudden they stop talking and they look around and they're like, where'd Jesus go? And here's Jesus over here in the corner and he's taking his robe off and he's wrapped a towel around his waist and he's coming at him with a wash basin and a washcloth and kneeling on his knees to wash their feet. The very men who just had conversations about who's going to be the greatest. And here is the Son of God on his knees, taking the position, the lowest servant position in the house, and he says, I'll I'll do this. The creator and sustainer of the universe washes the feet of the disciples and assumes the lowest position in the house. And I think Jesus just was constantly asking a question that I want to put before us this morning, and it's a question that I want you to start asking this week. This is your homework, just this week. As you're walking around, when you walk into a room, you ask yourself the question, okay, Jesus, where can I be the best servant in this situation? How can I serve other people? How can I connect these ideas of justice and love and give? How can I make their problem my problem? And how can I do something to be a help and not a hindrance? The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee before he became a Christian. And he left it behind to follow Jesus. And when he started to follow Jesus, he planted churches all around the Mediterranean rim. 
One of the churches he planted was Philippi, and he wrote a letter back to the Philippians, and he wrote some of the most famous, popular words. I love this passage of Scripture. I want to read it to you. This is Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And he didn't take his status and use it for his own advantage. Verse 7, rather he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He became a servant. You have two choices this morning. You, you can have the mind of a Pharisee, which is all about elevating yourself, or you can have the mind of Christ, which is about who can I serve. It's a simple choice. Mind of a Pharisee, mind of Jesus. Mindset of a Pharisee, mindset of Jesus. So if you feel Jesus leaning across the table at you this morning, and he's speaking directly to you, let me offer this suggestion. Go home, take out your Bible, get a note card, write these passages down, four verses, Write them down and look over them this week. I would encourage you to commit this to memory. Now, you may not be the person that does that. It's a good thing for you to once in a while memorize a portion of Scripture. This is a great one to memorize. Jesus, just pray over it. Jesus, transform my heart and make my heart look more like yours. Help me to be a person who does this in my life. Or you could be sitting here this morning thinking to yourself, Brett, you know what, good story, good sermon, but I'm not that bad. I mean, it's not horrible. I'm not going to, Brett, I'm not going to get all worked up about this. Just stop it. Your choice. So as we wrap up, let's talk about the fourth image that Jesus gives us this morning, and it's the image of graves and tombs. First century Jews did everything they could to avoid tombs and gravestones. That's why they painted them white. They whitewashed them so that they were easily identified so they wouldn't accidentally wander into one because if you did, what you had to do to overcome that, that form of uncleanliness, it, they, they felt like it made you ceremonially unclean. And when they got felt that way, it just there was all this stuff that they had to do. Now, you know, having ceremonially unclean hands, you fix that with the pitcher of water. But when you've accidentally walked into a tomb or if you've touched a dead body, that's the, that is the mother of defilement, okay? That is like unceremonially unclean DEFCON 1. Like, oh my goodness, they've touched a dead body. Here's what you'd have to do if you touched a dead body. First of all, you have to quarantine yourself for seven days, to which we go, Pfft. <laughs> Seven days? Are you kidding me? That's all? I mean, we did it for two weeks or six months, however you want to think about it. <laughs> that, that whole flatten the curve in two weeks thing, where did that go? We're still doing that, right? So they would first have to quarantine themselves for seven days. Then they would have to offer on, a, on an altar a certain kind of cow. They would have to kill this cow. And then they would have to take the ashes from that dead cow carcass and sprinkle those on themselves for a form of purification. And once you did that, you were ceremonially, ceremonially clean. If you didn't do that, you could not go to the courtyard of the temple. You weren't allowed in there. This is where they felt like they were close to God. This is where they wanted to be. And they wouldn't let you in there if you were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. Now, with all that in mind, let's look at what Jesus says about unmarked graves. Luke eleven forty four. 44, woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. In other words, you guys are so concerned about becoming defiled that you don't understand that you are the ones who are doing the defiling. You've been given influence and authority and you think you're leading these people to God, but you're actually leading people away from God. And Matthew, he says it like this, and we're going to get our word... Uh, Hippocrati, a hypocrite, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. In other words, you slam the door. Jesus is trying to show us that there is a way of pursuing faith that actually turns people away from Jesus. There is a way of pursuing faith that turns people away from Jesus. And the worst thing that could happen is that you could be trying to practice your faith in a way without the sincerity, without cleaning the inside, without 
all the authenticity going on, that your coworkers or your family or your spouse or God forbid our kids watch us live out our faith and they go, I want nothing to do with that. Harsh words from Jesus. You ever been sat down at the table for the conversation? I hated that when my mom would say, Brett, come in here, I need to talk to you. Oh. She'd sit me down. Brett, this is what you're doing. It's got to stop. This is what you did. I know you did it. We've got to talk about what the consequences are. And it was, it was a problem for several reasons. One, I love my mother dearly, and I never wanted to disappoint her, and I knew she was disappointed in me. There's also that, that part where I knew she was going to bring the thunder. <laughs> you know, I knew it was coming, and I was like, oh, I don't want the thunder. Look, this is important. It was important to my mother to bring the thunder to correct me because she loved me. And this is important to Jesus, and that's why he brings the thunder with this Pharisee, because he actually loves this guy, and he wants to help him change. The question is, are you going to be able to stand up underneath the correction of Jesus this morning and say, you know what, boy, that was great for somebody else. No, 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 no. It was great for me. I need to change my heart. Father, come in and transform my heart. Change me from the inside out. I want to be someone that when they see me living for you, they want you to. Will you do that? Let's pray together. Father, it's, it's not a lot of fun to sit under the thunder. It's not a lot of fun to listen to Jesus when we know he's right. We know he's right. And it's a lot easier for us to just say, well, he's talking to a Pharisee, that doesn't apply to me. No, Father, we are the Pharisee in this story. And we do have correction that we need to pay attention to. And we do need to fix some things. And we do desperately need your help to do it. And so, Father, in these quiet moments, I pray for these, my friends, that you would be doing a work in us this week so that we are not the wrong kind of example to our co-workers and our students and our classmates and father our kids so we we take a position of humility before you we confess our desires to be great and we confess our desire now to become like the the serving Christ on his knees washing feet Help us, Father, to make other people's problems our problems, to marry up justice and love so that it makes a difference in the world. There's a lot of fighting, a lot of name-calling, a lot of hatred in the world. May that not be found in us today. We pray this in Jesus' name.